So I'm going to tell you a little story when I first met Nancy. Many of you know this story. Some of you don't. Uh, I met her in August of 1991. Uh, 55 college students were starting campus ministries in the Soviet Union at that time, two weeks after the coup with Gorbachev. We were in Vermont uh, debriefing or orientating to get ready to go, and I saw this lady with her luggage, and I said to myself, that lady needs help with her luggage. It was probably the biggest thought I had in 1991, and it was the best thought I had in 1991. Now, I remember the encounter like it was yesterday, and I could have ultra slow motion snapshots of everything that happened in that encounter, and she doesn't remember a thing. Translated, she doesn't remember me at all in that first encounter, right? Well, that's okay, because I'm really persistent, those of you that know me. So we uh, get into Moscow late, going 20-plus hours without sleep, and everyone's going to Red Square, but I'm only concerned if one person's going to Red Square. She is, so I am, right? Uh, on the walk over, she's surrounded by boys. Uh, one guy in particular, and I still don't like him, um, and he just wouldn't shut up. He kept talking and talking and talking, and I waited and I waited and I waited, and then, then I had my chance. Uh, he gave me this... He had to take a breath sometimes, so he took a breath, and then he was acting like the world's Moscow tourist traveler and was pointing out the Kremlin, and all he had to do was turn a little bit, and I made my move. And this is, quite frankly, where my wrestling came in really, really handy. Uh, next thing I know, Nancy sees me. <laughs> and it's almost like she had that look in her eye like, what happened to Ernest? I couldn't think of a name, but I was thinking of some name, Ernest. Yeah, what happened to him? Uh, but there I am. Uh, Two days later, I asked if I could write her because I was going to Almaty, Kazakhstan, and she said yes. I wrote for t every day for two, to two months, sometimes two times a day. I had nowhere to deliver. There was no mail. didn't know where she was. They didn't know where we were, so I just started collecting a stack of letters, right? The campus leadership team comes down to check on us, uh, and I went up to the, the leader at the end of the day before we left, and I said, Greg, can I talk to you about the no dating policy? I get his permission, and I hand him a whole stack of letters to take back to this girl in Moscow. Uh, at Thanksgiving, our team flies into Moscow with 20 Kazakh students for the first ever Bible conference for students in the former Soviet Union. Um, while I were driving over there, while we were flying and while we were driving over there, we first had to go to Moscow. I had 20 pounds to put back on. I mean, we had to go to McDonald's. And I uh, went to McDonald's, and when I saw her, uh, I am thinking, you know, does she remember who I am? Does she remember my name? <laughs> I mean, like, who are you again? That's what I was thinking she was going to say to me. Uh, she had some recognition when I approached her, and I said, I handed her another stack of six-week of letters. And I said, I told you I would write. <laughs> uh, nine months later, we were married. <laughs> so... The point of the story is you want to find a wife, you go on a mission trip. You want to find a husband, be a missionary. It's a great place. Um, now listen, whether, whether it's a romantic explosion like the stuff in movies or it's just a slow growing, developing, love awakening friendship or whether it's an arranged marriage by your family or the internet, when God brings two people together in marital union, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. Uh, it's filled with wonder. Uh, it's deeply mysterious, right? The Bible describes it this way. It's covenantal. <laughs> I 
I know that word doesn't grab you with all the breathtaking beauty and wonder, but all those words are loaded into covenantal. Uh, Today, we're going to look at a match made in heaven, and it's a two-parter. As I was working on this, I realized there is a lot here. So if you look in your passage, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this week called the messiness of marriage. Next week, 6 through 9, we're going to look at the meaning meaning of marriage. But today, the whole topic is called a match made in heaven. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. Do the whole thing. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word, and again, that um, it is powerful, it is living, it is active, it is your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do for us which we cannot do for ourselves, open our eyes, uh, work deeply in our hearts, give us power uh, to see, power to, to actually taste the realities here, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, marriage and divorce are a big deal, are they not? These life events generate great interest and great controversy. They're not just a big deal today. They're a big deal in Jesus' day. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10 is the turn. This is the turn towards Jerusalem. His ministry to the religious is over. His ministry to the irreligious is over. Galilee was kind of like the launching pad. And now he's going towards Jerusalem. And it is a turn towards Jerusalem for his ultimate ministry. The cross and the resurrection. So this is the final stretch, verse 1, and he left them there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So chapter 10 is the final stretch of teaching about real Christianity for Jesus. And what's his first topic in this last stretch, this home stretch towards Jerusalem? The most fundamental relationship in life, marriage. Mark scholar James Edwards says, having marriage at the beginning of Jesus' teaching in this section shows the importance of marital union in the kingdom of God, end quote. Marriage and divorce is a big deal. But why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is there so much power in marriage and divorce? 
Why is there so much significance loaded in there? Why is this such a life-changing, life-shaping events? Let's set the scene here, and then we're going to answer that question. I want you to remember that Mark rarely records the content of Jesus' teaching. Remember, this is an action hero gospel. This is a doing gospel. This is a man's gospel. This is boom, boom, boom. This is not a lot of peripheral stuff, though nothing's peripheral in the Bible. Uh, He just tells us Jesus taught and that he did a lot of it. Look again at verse 1. But he doesn't tell us what Jesus was teaching. What we're getting in verses 1 through 12 is the Q&A after Jesus' teaching, not the content of Jesus' teaching. So that's why the religious leaders come up and say, uh, the Pharisees came up in order to test him and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now this seems like a good, honest, teachable question, doesn't it? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is divorce okay? Can divorce ever be godly? Right? Many of us ask that same question today, don't we? When our marriage is falling apart, don't we ask this question? When we've lost the loving feeling, don't we ask this question? When our parents end their marriage after 30 years, don't we ask this question? Or if they ended it when we were six years old, is it lawful? Is it okay? When someone comes and confides to us and says, you know, my husband, he's beating me. Um, He's abusing me. If our hearts get broken through the unfaithfulness of a spouse, we ask these questions, don't we? But we know that the religious leader's question is not a good, honest, teachable question. How do we know? Because Mark tells us. Look at it again. And the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. Test his trap. Get Jesus in trouble. Many think it's the same. This is Herod's region. It's his district. He has authority over there. Many scholars think they're trying to do the same thing that got John the Baptist in trouble. Get him to start talking about divorce, saying it's unlawful. Then Herod's going to come down on him. Or better yet, his wife, Herodias, is going to come down on him. Because remember, John the Baptist said, you have an unlawful marriage. Uh, You married your husband's brother. You divorced him just because you wanted to, right? All right, so we've set the scene. So why is marriage so powerful? Why is it such a big deal? Why is divorce? First answer, are you ready? According to this passage, this is what we're focusing on today. The answer is because we marry and divorce for many messed up reasons. The reason why marriage and divorce is so significant and so loaded with power is that we marry and we divorce for many messed up reasons. Chris Rock, you know who he is? He's the Calvin of comedy. Said, I made that up, so I feel good about that. I tried two jokes now in three weeks. Two. And no response. I mean, I tell you, people have said to me, Jeff, your preaching's like a hurricane. Please give us an eye in the midst of your storm. So I try. I try. I'm done. I'm done with comedy. Chris Rock said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Now, researchers and statistics would say that many people agree with that. In fact, uh, Many people believe you only have two options. You can either be single and bored or married or single and lonely or married and bored. 
1960, 72% of adults were married. Today, 50%. 22% drop. Uh, one growing solution to avoid single and lonely and married and bored is to cohabitate. It's to live together. Over 50% of adults, before they get married now, are living together. Um, Sternberg, who's a researcher on relationships, did a study called A Brutally Candid Oral History. He concluded that the arrangement has been more beneficial to men than to women. Here's what he says. Cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. Oh, now there's the dirty little secret. My young lady friends, this is what I want to say to you. Any guy uh, who will not marry you but wants to live with you is a loser. And I mean that in the most godly way I could say it. I think what you need to say to him is, Son, Ernest, Nebuchadnezzar, don't let that door hit you on the backside on the way out, right? Okay. Now, gals, uh, not to leave the women out of this either, were men generally speaking, men generally speaking, what are we looking for? The soulmate cosmic babe, right? What are girls looking for? What are ladies looking for? The soulmate cosmic love. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ernest Becker writes, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fill one's, fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused on one individual. In a word, the love object is God. Man reached for a thou when the worldview of the re- great religious community overseen by God died. After all, what is it that we all want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption. Nothing less. End quote. Becker calls this apocalyptic romance. My young manly friends, this is what I want to say to you. You are not Jesus. So right now, start practicing that reality. So that when that person comes along that you probably will marry or spend the rest of your life with, that that's God's plan for you, you don't fuel any delusions that you're Jesus to her. Okay? Uh, my lady friends, married and desiring to be, your husband is not Jesus. Stop trying to get Jesus out of your husband. You are killing him and killing your marriage. Okay? All right, there are many reasons we marry and divorce. We seek love and romance, so we marry. We lose love and romance, so we divorce. We seek compatibility in the perfect soulmate, so we marry. We find out we're incompatible, (laughs) and they change on us, so we divorce. We seek comfort and financial security, so we marry. But then marriage becomes uncomfortable, and we're insecure, so we divorce. We seek someone to meet our needs sexually, emotionally, so we're not lonely, so we can find acceptance and affirmation and encouragement in life, so we marry. Then we're stunned when the person we marry is so self-centered and cannot meet our needs, so we divorce. Marriage and divorce are so powerful and so life-changing and so influential in our life because we marry 
for so many messed up reasons and divorce for so many messed up reasons, right? Okay, it was no different in Jesus' day. Look at verse 3. And he answered them. Now he's answering their question. Remember, the question is to trap him, to get him in trouble, possibly get Herod on his backside. Uh, He answered them, what did Moses command you? Jesus, what does he do? He answers with the Bible. And he goes to the go-to verse in all the Old Testament about divorce. And that was in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It starts like this. Here it goes. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if if then she finds no favor in his eyes because, that's key, he has found some indecency in her, which means sexual sin in another man, with another man. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Okay? Verse 4. They respond. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What are they conveniently forgetting? Because or why, right? True. But in the passage, Moses only gives one lawful reason at this time. To divorce. Adultery, sexual sin. Now, Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 7, gives another and the final uh, grounds of a biblical divorce, and that's willful desertion. Abandoning your spouse, which includes abuse in there. Okay? So now, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders and the religious documents of that day uh, permitted a man to divorce his wife. The Mishnah says this, If she spoiled a dish for him, you can divorce her. The first day back from our honeymoon, our marriage would have been over. Sorry, honey. I'd have more wives than Solomon if that was the case. Right? If he, here's the other reason the Mishnah says, if he, the husband, found another more fairer, more beautiful, more attractive, He can write her a certificate of divorce according to the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary on the law, the standard of what's right and wrong in that day. So do you see what's happened? Uh, In other words, if she finds no favor in his eyes, they forget the because of sexual sin. And now it means anything and everything is grounds for divorce. So in Jesus' day as well as our own, we marry and we divorce for many messed up reasons. Right? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we have so many messed up reasons to get married and so many messed up reasons to get a divorce? Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The powerful problems with marriage and divorce are not within the institution of marriage, nor in the legal certificate of divorce. The powerful problem with marriage and divorce is within the human heart. The hardness of heart. We need soft hearts. We need new hearts. We need healed hearts. Your greatest need this morning, my greatest need this morning, whether you're married or not, is a healed heart. For something powerful enough to reach 
our hard heart. Heal it. Next week, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9. So we got two angles here. we got the angle of the mess, and we got the angle of the meaning of marriage. So obviously, this week is focusing on the negative. Next week is focusing on the positive. Um, so I'm not going to leave you with just negative, okay? We're going to have some positive here. But here's what we all need this morning, whether we're married or not, whether we're desiring to be married or not, whether we're divorced or not, or whether we're desiring to be divorced or not. We need healed hearts. Right? How does that happen? How do we get a healed heart? How does that hard heart get reached in such a way that it actually changes and it actually gets healed? How does that happen? I mean, we have to ask that. We all can say that, and most of us do when we go to church. We say, yeah, I need a healed heart. I need a new heart. I need a changed heart. Most of us don't even think of it, though, when we're in the thick of it. When you're in the midst of a confrontation in your marriage, you're not thinking, I need a healed heart. Hardness is everywhere between the two spouses, and no one's crying out, I need a healed heart, but that's exactly what we need. And then once we maybe we come to it, I need a healed heart, then we've got to start wrestling with, well, how do you get it? How do we get a healed heart? Right? The Apostle Paul, did you know he uses this exact same text that Jesus does in his famous marriage sermon? Genesis 1 and 2, he uses the exact same text, and he does it in a letter called Ephesians, and this is what he says, and here's the answer for healing a hard heart. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might, she might be holy and without blemish do you see it when jesus saw your mess when he saw your hardness of heart he didn't run from it he hung on the cross until he healed it until he sanctified you until he made you splendid, without blemish, without spot, no flaw, no imperfection. Positively, we could say, infinitely attractive, beyond beautiful, cleansed, holy, until he healed your hard heart. Jesus hung on the cross until he reached that hard heart and healed it. This is the true love you and I are looking for. That kind of love. The love that heals our hardness. Uh, This is the true spouse everyone in this room is looking for that heals you most deeply. There are many of us here that are struggling in our marriages, right? When I say those of us that are struggling in our marriages, I mean every single person in here who's married. (laughs) 
If you're married, you struggle in your marriage. Why? Because marriage brings two broken, two hard-hearted people together. There will always be a struggle. So here's what the passage says to us. Because remember, this is a pretty hard-hitting passage. It starts negative, the first five verses. Basically, the passage is saying, get over yourself. Get over yourself. Admit that the greatest threat and the greatest problem to your marriage is you, not your spouse. This passage says if you basically get that, if you get that the greatest threat and the greatest problem in your marriage is you and not your spouse, you are on your way. That is the beginning. That is the foundation of actually laying a meaningful, thriving marriage. If we miss that one, we're going to move to messed up reasons to have a divorce. Whether we do so with a legal certificate or whether we do so functionally just the way we're living together. Okay? Those contemplating divorce, in other words, you're actually seeking a legal certificate uh, or you're functionally living like it. There are only two biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery, right? And willful desertion, which includes abuse, abandoning. If your spouse is unrepentant, meaning they're hard-hearted, they've committed adultery, once, twice, multiple, maybe it's been years and now you found out it's been years or maybe it's been a one-night stand, whatever it is, and they're unrepentant, or they're willfully deserting you, willfully abandoning you, rejecting you, abusing you, walking away from you, want nothing to do with you, cutting you off emotionally, relationally, physically, separating themselves and leaving. If they're unrepentant, if they're in their hardness of heart, uh, you have possibly, uh, divorce could be a godly action for you. And that might be a godly pursuit for you. But here's what I would say. Consult spiritual leadership and counsel first. In other words, go to your church leadership team and seek what is best in this situation. Uh, And that counsel, that team might say, yes, the godly way for you is to divorce, to write a certificate of divorce. It might mean, I mean, we're not touching on all this, but it might mean the person's repentant and they're not hard of heart. Uh, And now we're in a whole different ball game, right? So a lot of times there's not like a real clear cut answer, Uh, but there are in certain cases of real abuse, hard-hearted abuse, willful desertion and walking away, unrepentant, multiple or whatever affairs. Okay. Um, If there are no biblical grounds for divorce, if you're living functionally like you're divorced, uh, let your hard heart be healed. There are no biblical grounds. You know that. So what are you going to do? What's your spouse going to do? The answer is, let your hard heart be healed. How? There is one who sees your hardness. There is one who sees your mess. And he hung on the cross until he healed your heart. Go to him. 
trust that true love, that true spouse. And as one author says, when that dynamic begins to happen, you stop being a vacuum cleaner and sucking the life out of each other's lives. But you now become a lover of their soul. Those of us that are divorced for unbiblical reasons, I mean, we have to deal with this. And there are some here that are dealing with this. Um, It's not adultery. There wasn't desertion. Please hear me. Please hear me. You are not shackled to unrelenting, unlimited, unending, debilitating guilt. Earlier in Mark, Jesus says some words that he is now going to say right to you. Please hear them. They are meant for you. Here are the words. Jesus says, truly I say to you. Jesus is saying this. Truly I say to you. When he's really earnest, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. Jesus hung on the cross to heal you of all your messes. All right. Turn to him and we're healed. Next week, we're going to focus on the power of the meaning of marriage. This week, we had to look at the mess. But hear the mess. See that there's one who sees it. See that there's one who took it. See that there's one who hung until all of it was taken away. Amen.